Let me invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Romans chapter 8. If you're new to Green Tree, we are in the middle of a, 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 gosh, we've been in about a year and a half in a study on Romans. Uh, I would say we're closing in on halfway through, but not quite. So we'll we'll be in Romans for the foreseeable future. But we're looking at chapter 8, which is all about the Spirit of God and what the Holy Spirit of God does in our lives. And this morning, we're going to be considering verses 12 through 17 as, we, as the Spirit reveals to us a new father uh, and a new family. Uh, churches have personalities. And, you know, if you've been around church long enough, you probably know that. Uh, Green Tree has certain things that are specific to Green Tree that uh, probably are a little bit different than, than other churches, even in this local area. Uh, one of the terms that we use a lot at Green Tree is community. We're called Green Tree Community Church. And uh, we desire and we long to, to really live out community with one another. We don't always do it as, as the very best we can. We fall short of our goals. Sometimes we, we aren't as community-focused as we ought to be in, in fellowship with one another. But, it, but it's a primary goal of ours to uh, be connected with one another. The term that I use most often when I'm talking about uh, our, our church is the term spiritual family. And so we're very relational at Green Tree, and that's part of our identity. We also are a church planting church. If you've been around Green Tree for a while, you know that uh, our desire is not to grow to be a, a big church in one spot, uh, but rather to seek to influence our, our larger city by planting uh, churches that have a similar vision in, uh, in other neighborhoods in St. Louis. So those are some things that are unique to Green Tree, but they're in our kind of in our core statements, in our mission statement and our vision statement. Um, I, I'm thinking about this passage of Scripture the last week, and it kind of dawned on me that there's another part of our personality that isn't written down anywhere. It isn't, uh, you know, part of what we publish and who we are or what we want to be. But I went back and I kind of just checked off in my mind the number of families at Green Tree that have adopted children. And for a church our size over, over the last, you know, we're about 12 years old. For, for a church our size, we have a lot of families who have adopted kids. If you go way back to the very beginning days, is there, uh, and there are probably a few folks that were here, you know, back in 98, 99 when things really uh, began to get started. And you remember Tom and Deneen Sturgeon, who, who have since moved to, uh, back to Texas. But Tom and Deneen went to Russia and adopted two boys uh, named Sergey and Tolly. And, and I probably should ask Judy instead of Doug to put you on the spot. I was trying to remember how old they were when they came over. Were they like six and eight when they came home with them? Yeah. It, somewhere in that general area. So they weren't babies. They were, they were kind of early grade school age. Uh, and they, they were the first family to, uh, to adopt. But also some of you may remember Kirk and Deb Atkinson. Kirk was an intern with us, helped us plant uh, our church over in Webster. They adopted a little girl. And, and after she was born, they found out that she was fatally ill and that she wasn't going to live but a few days. And they adopted her anyway. Uh, they could have just left her with a birth mother. And they, but they went through that entire process and all of that expense, even to just have her for a few days to, to call her uh, their very own. Uh, I think about Jeff and Patrice and adopting Grace. I think about the, the Benesses who have gone to Russia twice to adopt. Uh, uh, the folks in their small group, Stephen Marie Durazio, are getting ready to go to Russia because they've been influenced by Andy and Jen to go and adopt. I think about uh, our business manager, Michael Porter. And I don't know how many of you have met Michael yet. He's been here about a year. Uh, but Michael and Becky are great. But Michael's one of the most stoic guys you've ever met. I mean, just kind of straight face. You know, you, you got to work to get to see emotions. But you start talking to him about their little daughter who they've adopted named Emerson or the most recent addition, little Jackson, who Jackson's about that long right now. He's brand new. And, and he can't talk about that without tearing up. It's just, it just so deeply embedded in his soul. And I think it, I, I don't want to just, you know, pat us on the back, 
But I think it's kind of cool to be in a church where adoption is a way that we respond to certain needs within our culture. And I haven't mentioned everybody. There are others who have adopted at Green Tree. But the reason I bring that up is because um, being a spiritual family speaks to the fact that there's something in the mind of God that has to do with salvation that isn't just a business deal. It's not just a transaction. And sometimes as as Reformed Presbyterians, we can get pretty uh, stoic and pretty set on on the theology of the thing and make sure that we understand this transaction of salvation by grace through faith. And we use words like justification and and redemption and, and sanctification. And those are all good things. But what Paul wants to remind us of this morning is there is a family tie. There is a bond that is deep and abiding that the Holy Spirit creates between God and us. And it's the spirit of adoption. And it's one of those biblical truths that are there and you kind of know about it, but you don't necessarily spend a lot of time with it. And I think that's to our detriment because I think most of us probably on some level deal with God in a bit of a business transaction mindset. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit this morning, I think is going uh, going to admonish us and encourage us to lay that aside for the real truth of what our relationship with God is to be about. So with that in mind, uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12, Uh, and reading through verse 17, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and that's the, the version that's up on the screen. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we have, we have sung to your glory this morning. Uh, you are the one who is our all in all. Uh, you are the one who sustains us. You are the one who, who saves us. Father, we have sung of, of your mercy and your goodness to lost sinners like us. Father, as we worship you with our voices, uh, the question really um, that comes to mind is, does that penetrate down into our hearts and to our minds? Are we going through the motions or are we truly um, grasping the depth of the love that is ours in Christ? Lord, I know that, that in a room this size, there are people here this morning who are, are maybe checking out the Christian faith, don't know too much about it. There are people here who have been disciples a long, long time and, and a lot of us somewhere in between there. But Father, you are the God of compassion and the God of mercy. You're the God who who tells us to call out Abba, Father. And there isn't a person in this room, regardless of what they believe about God, or even if they, even if they don't believe in God, longs for that to be true in their lives, to have someone who would love us with such deep conviction and such a personal intimacy, not as a group, not as a number, not as something to check off their list, but, but has true compassion, has true joy when they think about us who loves the fact that we are part of their family. Father, there isn't a soul on this planet 
that doesn't long deeply for that kind of relationship, and it's because you've created us that way. So, Father, as we look into this passage that, that explains that and calls us to trust and to believe that that's true, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would teach us, that we would be able to worship you with our minds and our intellect. Lord Jesus, you know my words are not important. It is only your eternal word that will stand forever. We don't need to hear man's advice or man's thoughts or man's philosophy today. We need to hear the word of God. So, Father, I pray that you would set me aside and that you would speak your truth into our lives. Lord Jesus, that you would come and be our teacher. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for my sins. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to reveal to to us today about adopting us as your sons and daughters. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, let me kind of give you my premise. It's a simple one, and then we'll, we'll work through the passage. I have four observations about the passage, but the premise is this. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live as adopted children of God instead of orphans. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit, not, not the only role, but one of the, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, one of the, the, the responsibilities and things uh, that the Holy Spirit does, is he empowers us to live as children of God instead of orphans. Now, I mentioned in the introduction the Sturgeons and, and Sergei and Tolle, and one of the things that was interesting is, is their uh, new family developed. Uh, Tommy and Deneen had two older daughters, and so uh, they, they were adopting these two little boys, and it kind of changed all the dynamics of their family. But one of the things that, that you would hear Deneen talk about and you would hear Tommy talk about would be how Sergei and Tolle had to learn to live as sons instead of orphans. And how before, when they lived in an orphanage, they lived under fear. They lived in a very anxious setting. They kind of had to look out for themselves. They didn't have a a mom or a dad who was caring for them. And there was a learning process that had to go on in their lives in order for them to really truly embrace living as a son in the Sturgeon household. I want to suggest to you this morning that, that all of us are on a learning curve as disciples of Jesus, every person in this room who has put their faith in Christ for salvation is somewhere on that learning curve of understanding how to live as a son or a daughter in the family of God, as opposed to just someone who is justified, someone who is saved. Those are wonderful words. They're spectacular words, but the message of salvation is incomplete until we understand that we are adopted and beloved sons and daughters of God. And so we want to see how the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that so that we can, as we're on this learning curve, we can embrace more fully our identity as as children of God. So my first observation is what I think Paul calls an allegiance that is owed. In verse 12 and 13, he says, Southern brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. In other words, you don't owe the flesh anything. The flesh is, is the old sinful way of life. The flesh was when you would, uh, would reject God's presence in your life and you, you know, you're kind of the captain of your own soul and you went and lived uh, under the, the promises of, of this world absent God's relationship. We don't owe that way of life anything, Paul says to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, if you choose to be a debtor to the flesh, you will die. But if you choose instead to be a debtor to the Spirit, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul says that you have an obligation. Paul says that every person who lives on the planet has an obligation, is a debtor. You're either going to be obligated to the flesh or you're going to be obligated to the Spirit. In other words, there's no neutrality. If a person says, you know, I'm kind of neutral towards the whole God thing, that's actually not a neutral statement. It's saying I'm choosing to reject that and I'm choosing to live 
apart from God. Earlier on in Romans, Paul says we, we either follow Adam or we follow Christ, who is the second Adam, what the, what the real Adam was supposed to be. So, so Paul says you, you, if you think you're kind of neutral, if you think you're kind of independent, you need to think again because you're going to be a debtor to one or to the other, to the flesh or to the spirit. As he plays this out, he draws a distinction between being a debtor or giving allegiance to the flesh and giving devotion to Christ. If, he says if you, if you give your allegiance to the flesh, the result is what? Well, it's sin. It's rebellion against God. And ultimately, it's death. If you're going to be loyal to the flesh, know where that loyalty is going to take you. But he says, if you give your allegiance to the Spirit of God, if you put your faith in Christ and trust in him, the Spirit now is indwelling you, and he gives you, he gives you the opportunity to see this ongoing destruction of that old way of life. And he not only takes away the, you know, is in the process of taking away the old, but he also brings in new life. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is saying that, that our devotion to Christ is our, our fidelity to the Spirit allows there to be a continual diminishing of sin's grip on our, on our lives. Now, the word that Paul uses there, the phrase that Paul uses there in that, in that passage, uh, you will put to death the deeds of the body. Paul's talking about an ongoing lifestyle. He's not talking about a once and for all. You don't, you don't say, you know what, I, I'm putting to, to death the deeds of the flesh. I'm never going to sin again. And then you go and you live a perfect life. <laughs> Everybody who's been a disciple of Jesus more than 20 minutes knows that that simply isn't possible. We continue to have this wrestling match between the two, but the Spirit is set on helping us put to death the deeds of the flesh. Listen to what James Edwards says about this passage. The Greek of the verb put to death is in the present tense, which indicates continuous action. The battle with sin is not a momentary event, no matter how sincere, but a lifetime commitment. The Spirit is not a promise to those who succeed in overcoming sin, but God's abiding presence in the midst of the flesh or sinful nature. The ability to sustain warfare against sin signals the Spirit's presence. Why should you give your allegiance to the Spirit? Because not only are you saved through the power of the Spirit by faith in Christ, but there is an ongoing presence in your life to minimize the impact of sin on your life. But there's also not only an allegiance owed, but Paul says there's also, we need to see, an allegiance that's given in verses 14 and 15. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice that we're not active in this verse until the very end, but we are the passive recipients of the spirit of God. We are being led. We have received. We haven't earned it. We haven't worked for it. It's not that we're better Christians than others because we've got it all figured out, but rather God has had mercy on us. In other words, before we owe God our allegiance, he's already given us his. Faith in Christ is not calling us to be God's servants. It's not calling us to be members of God's team. It's not even calling us into a a casual or a close friendship, but rather faith in Christ, Paul says in verse 16, makes you children of God. It brings us 
into a family relationship. We have a new father. Our identity through Christ is that we belong to God as children. Again, notice the distinction. Allegiance to the flesh leads us where? To slavery and to fear and to death. Paul comes back and he replays that because he wants us to understand as we make this choice, am I going to put my faith in Christ or not? We're making a choice of life and death. This last week, I read a little bit uh, again uh, on Ernest Hemingway's life and one of the great authors that this country has produced and a brilliant man uh, on so many different levels. Uh, He was a genius, but he was a man who embraced the flesh and, and I'm not talking about uh, Ernest Hemingway behind his back, even though he's not here. I'm simply uh, reflecting on what he said about his own life and how he lived his own life. And he went after all of the things that the flesh promised. He, he had four wives. He had more mistresses than anybody really knew about. He was an adventure guy. He was a hard-drinking guy. He just, you know, whatever there was, wherever there was a party, wherever there was an excitement, where, whether it was a, a civil war in Spain or whether it was in the heart of Paris, Hemingway was kind of there living life to the full but void of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And at the end of his life, Hemingway was crippled by the choices he had made all of his life. He was a shell of a man. The last days of his life, Hemingway, uh, in one of the last things he said to one of, his, one of his acquaintances was simply this, all is lost. And two days after that, he put a shotgun to his head and blew his brains out. Hemingway believed the promises of the flesh. I, I'm not trying to pick on Hemingway. He was a genius, but he purposely rejected the claims of Christ and he lived for the gratification of the flesh. And the process developed itself the way God said it would. And at the end, as Hemingway said, all is lost. But Paul says there's a different way because God has has given us by grace in Christ the opportunity to come into a relationship with him. And so when we trust in Christ, we have a new father. We have a new family. All of you that are led by the spirit are sons of God. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is not just a contractual relationship where God takes our sin away and gives us, uh, gives us salvation in Christ. It begins there, but it continues on into this family relationship. When Jesus told his disciples, they said, hey, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? You remember what he said? When you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. First rabbi in the history of the nation of Israel ever to tell people to pray, our father. Jesus wanted them to understand that a a new relationship was theirs. It wasn't just that God saved them because he was trying to be a nice guy, but he didn't really like him very much, but that he wanted to call them his true sons and daughters and have that kind of intimate relationship that exists between a parent and their children. Uh, A lot of you know our daughter Katie is living in Hawaii and she's my little girl. We have two boys on either side of her, but Katie's my little girl, and she's still the one that calls me daddy. Now, the boys have kind of outgrown that, uh, but, but I'm still papa. I'm still daddy to Katie, and we enjoy that father-child relationship that's so special and so intimate. I want to share with you an email that she sent me uh, that kind of shows the, the friendship and the intimacy we have. It starts out, and it says, Dear Pastor Tom Ricks, Katie does have this notion that she's actually the Holy Spirit in my life. Um, while I found your devotional about 
uh, you know, she talked about this devotional she read. Very insightful and well-written. Uh, I find that you were a bit misleading in your description of, of antiquing with mothers. So I was telling a story of going over to, to uh, Illinois in the Amish country and where Cindy and I spent a day antiquing. And she says I wasn't really honest. While the intention is good each time you attempt this venture, it does not count as participating in the activity if you wait in the car are impatient while she looks, and make it obvious that you are sacrificing your time for her throughout the process. I'm not sure who made Katie the antiquing police, but, but she is the final authority on this subject. And then she gives me five bullet points on how I should change what I was doing. I would like to offer some simple advice on how to antique, if you, in fact, hate to antique. And I'm not going to read all of you, but here are a couple. Find something cool to look at and just forget where you are for an hour or so or so while she walks around. Uh, Don't hesitate to wander outside for a moment and let off some steam. The goal is not to be obviously miserable so as to take away from the joy of the true shopper. This may require stepping out of the building for a moment, but a word of caution. This can only be for a minute or two. Don't forget to return quickly. Don't mock the activity, although you would much rather be on the golf course. I can't believe she would say that. She doesn't need to know that. Consider it your personal duty to make it clear that there is no one else you, with whom you'd rather be. Uh, since, and she goes on, sorry, I live in Hawaii and can't take on this role in her life anymore. Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> your affectionate daughter, Katie. Now, there are probably only one or two people that could write me that email that I wouldn't get upset, but she's definitely one of them. It's my little girl. I'm her papa. That's the relationship. And when, when, when Paul says there's an allegiance given, you need to understand that God longs to draw his children to himself, that God's passion is for you, that when he looks at you, he sees the delight. I mean, even, even as I, I, I have fun with that example, I delight in my daughter. And there's so many Christians that think that God just kind of has to have you because of what Jesus did on the cross. At the end of the day, he's really not all that excited about you. We miss the fact that there is an allegiance that is given to us from the foundation of the world. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, and it's by the Spirit of adoption that we call out Papa, that we are in a true child-father relationship with each one of us, with our Father in heaven. Because of that, we see... in in verses 16 and 17, that God speaks directly to this. I call it a witness given. And in verse 16, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The spirit reinforces your faith. The spirit reinforces my faith. If you're a disciple of Jesus, the spirit of, uh, of Christ is dwelling in you and he is continually reinforcing the truth about your standing with God as a son or a daughter. He reminds us that we belong to our Father. Verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So I got to thinking about that this week, and I, and I was thinking about how does the Spirit bear witness? Now, what I'm going to share with you for the next couple of minutes is just, I, I, it's, it's Tom's thinking. It's not in the Bible anywhere. I mean, I think I could find verses that point to this. It's more experiential. You could probably come up with some other words but I think that they're true based on the passage of Scripture. How does the Spirit bear witness with my spirit? How does the Spirit remind me that I'm a son of God? And I came up with three words. The first one is calming. You ever have a a moment or or an experience where it's just overwhelming? 
you know, whether it's a, a bad report from the doctor or, you know, something just terribly tragic has happened or life's just kind of gotten away from you and you just, you just feel like it's out of control. And you're like, God, are you even there? Are you, are, are you around? Are you listening to me? And the Spirit of God says, right here, right now, even in this moment. Have you ever had an experience where your own heart has condemned you, where you've said, I cannot believe I just said that? How could I be a disciple of Jesus and have those words come out of my life? mouth. How can I profess to be a Christian and just do what I did? I must not be a believer. And the, and the Spirit of God comes and he calms our hearts. And he says, child, God is holding on to you. You're not holding on to God. And he offers that calming spirit. But the Spirit also comes to confront us, right? Because there are times when children disobey. I mean, Mary Ann's got, you know, roll the eyes, the even, you know, whatever mom kind of deal. There are times when as children, I remember back when I disobeyed my parents, I'd know very well when my kids disobeyed me. And there's a moment when confrontation is important. There's a moment when confrontation is the most life-giving thing you can do for your child or confrontation is the most life-giving thing you can receive as a child. And the Spirit of God says, no, 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 we're not going that way. That way is death. And the Spirit gets in our face a little bit and reminds us to whom we belong. Along those same lines, I think the Spirit is also correcting. And and correcting is a little nuanced in that it's not like I've kind of put my hands on my hips and said, no, I'm not going to listen to you, God. But I'm following God, but I'm making a mistake. It's kind of like I remember years ago when I took math. I remember freshman math in college. And the professor would circle the part of the equation that I got right. You know, two-thirds of the problem you got, but then you, you, know, you had the wrong sign here, the wrong number here, and so this part's wrong. So if you correct this, the rest of it's okay. Well, that's not what happens in my faith. I'm following Christ. I love him. And I get off the trail a little bit. I'm not purposely rebelling. I'm not being antagonistic. I just get it wrong. And the Spirit of God comes and says, Tom, it's, it's a moment of correction. You have a misunderstanding of, of, of who I am or, or who Christ is in your life, and we need to edit that just a little bit. I think when it says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Those are the things that he does. But there's one other thing. In verse 17, he says that if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, what I've said there is our name is in the will. The, the spirit reminds us uh, that the inheritance of Jesus is also our inheritance as children of God. And you think about all that belongs to Christ. All of, all of creation, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And he's going to share that with us. We're part of his inheritance. I don't know if you ever saw the movie um, Secondhand Lions, but the movie's about a little kid named Walter. He's kind of a scrawny little guy. And his mom has cast him off. She, she doesn't really love him very much. She's, she's out you know, chasing around some guys, and he doesn't even know who his dad is. And he's kind of dumped on the doorstep of these two uncles, uh, Uncle Hub and, and Uncle Garth, on this backwoods uh, ranch in Texas. And the story is all about Walter and Uncle Hub and Uncle Garth becoming a family. And these guys are gruff and, you know, salesmen come up to their door and they're shooting at them with shotguns. And they're, you know, they're just the, you know, just these kind of crazy uncles. But apparently they have a fortune buried somewhere. And the whole reason why his mom dropped him off is because she wants the fortune. But what happens is instead of the fortune becoming the focus, Walter is endeared to the uncles and and the uncles to Walter. And they become a true family. And at the end of the movie, don't want to give it away, but, but Walter hears the will that, that the uncles have left. Um, and, and the sheriff calls him on the phone. He says, hey, I've got to tell you what's happened. And, and I've got the will in front of me, and it's really short. It's simply one sentence. And it says this, the kid gets it all. The kid gets it all. Put your name in that sentence. 
when the Spirit of God is testifying that we are heirs with Christ, what he's saying is, in Jesus, you get it all. In Christ, Tom gets it all. He gets eternal life. He gets an eternal relationship with the Father. He gets the joys of heaven, not because he's done anything right, but because he's a family member, because of what Christ did for him on the cross. And the Spirit of God reminds us of that every day. The Spirit of God bears witness to the fact that we stand secure in Christ because of his mercy and because of his grace. God witnesses his love for us through the Spirit. Therefore, we in turn owe God our witness. Look at verse second half of verse 17. We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says there, there comes a moment in the life of the believer where suffering will occur. Suffering is part and parcel with our family identity. Paul says that just as Christ suffered, remember that Christ had to go through the cross in order to purchase your salvation and my salvation, but Christ suffered on the cross, but now he wears the crown of victory over sin and death. And so Paul says, Christ suffered, you will suffer alongside with him. That's part of being in this family. And make no mistake about it, walking with Christ is going to mean there will be some suffering in your life. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. I'm not going to put the passage on the screen, but the first few verses of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with his endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him uh, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Paul is, is reminding us in this passage that suffering is part and parcel to being involved in the family, being belonging to the family of God. But notice also that he says we are, if we are suffering with Christ, and we need to make sure we understand what that means, that does not mean suffering ramifications for our sins. So if you say to me, boy, I'm really suffering for Jesus because I stole from my employer and he fired me. You're not suffering for Jesus, you're suffering because you're a thief. Right? So, you know, I ran around on my wife, I had numerous affairs, and now I'm suffering for Jesus because she left me. No, you're not. You're, you're suffering because of the sin in your life. So we can't lose that little phrase, with Christ. A lot of us apply our suffering to Jesus when we ought to apply our suffering to our own sinful nature. But there are moments when we suffer with Christ. There are moments when we're called upon to be the person with the bad prognosis because we're going to show the world how a Christian suffers in faith. There are moments when we agonize over great loss in our lives. And we don't have the answers for it. In this side of heaven, that it makes no rhyme or reason, but we know because we belong to Christ that our sufferings reflect his. And in those moments of darkness, there can be a steadiness of spirit, not because we feel great, not because we don't have anguish or we don't have sorrow, we don't have tears. We have all of that, but we also have the knowledge of the truth that just as Christ suffered, so God uses in the lives of his children in order to produce perseverance and a deepening of faith that allows us to trust in him in any and every circumstance. Friends, I can tell you it would be a whole lot easier and, I, and I'd, I'd prefer it if Joel Olstein was right. 
be a whole lot easier if really God, all he wanted to do was, was heap a whole bunch of great stuff on me and wealth and fame and fortune and all of that. And, and that's how God treats those he loves, but there would be no faith in that. And that simply is a lie that is not in scripture. Jesus says very clearly, if you're my disciple, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't come in and relieve our suffering. It doesn't mean that God doesn't heal us. He does. It doesn't mean that God doesn't come in and answer prayer miraculously. He absolutely does. But he also takes us through the fire because he knows the end result is going to be a child that looks more like Jesus, that looks more like a member of the family. I'm going to bring you back to James Edwards for just a moment. If in the mystery of God, the suffering of his son became the gateway to glory, then believers and the church must also participate in Christ's sufferings if they are to share in that glory. In the history of theodicy, the problem of suffering has normally been posed as an obstacle to belief. But in verse 17, the problem is wholly absent. Suffering and glory are not presented as theological dilemma or in diametrical opposition, but in identification with Christ. They are his suffering and his glory. Suffering is not a glitch in the divine purpose or a lapse on the part of believers. Suffering is an unavoidable and necessary part of God's purpose for Christ and for his church. The power of the resurrection is known only through the cross. No cross, no crown is not a trite cliche. It is an expression, it expresses God's saving purpose for both the suffering and the glory are the believer's inheritance with Christ. Friends, I do not want to make light of anyone's suffering today. I don't believe that Scripture makes light of it. And there are terrible circumstances in many people's lives in this room that don't have simple explanations. But I know that the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who took him through the suffering of the cross, will be faithful to his other children. And if he brings suffering and he places in our lap for a season is because he is refining our souls. And our witness to the world is not that we have all the answers, not that we can explain it away, but that there is a peace that abides in our heart because the spirit of adoption lives there. And he reminds us moment by moment, day by day, about the one to whom we belong. So the choice that's before us this morning as we wrap this up, how do we apply well, just remembering sin abducts. Sin, sin, sin steals us away, but God adopts. Sin enslaves. It makes us uh, submit to its will, but God frees his children to love him and to follow him. In the flesh, there's fear and hostility, but in the spirit, there's a trust and there's an intimacy that is only exists between a father and a child. I love the subtle identity of Green Tree, the, the adopting identity of Green Tree. I think it's really cool. I have no idea why God is, has done that over the last 12 years of Green Tree, but I think it's really cool. I, I love all the kids we have at Green Tree. I love the fact that there are tons of children uh, running around here. I, I appreciate that so much. It gives us the opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with the next generation. But, but for our purposes this morning, the deeper and more important question is, do you understand, do I understand that we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. You're not a project. You're not a number on a sheet. You're not a name in a book that somehow, you know, so, oh, yeah, we, yeah, on page 7,642, column B, number C, it's in there someplace. You're a child. You're known and you're loved by your father through Christ. And so he sent his spirit, his spirit of adoption to remind you that you belong to him. Let's pray.
Lord, we, we say Father so quickly when we address you. And, and on many levels, I'm really thankful for that because it, it reflects the fact that some of that truth is, has sunk down into our souls and, and we are really beginning to understand that we are your beloved children. But Father, there are so many other obstacles to that. And so many times we forget. We think we're saved and, and redeemed, but you're pretty disappointed in us and, and um, you, know, you don't really like us all that much. Father, forgive us for that lack of faith. Forgive us for not believing what Scripture says, but believing what our emotions may tell us in the morning, in, in the moment. And Father, create within us a spirit of adoption. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come and you empower us to live as children and not as orphans. And I pray that we would remember that every moment of every day this week until we're together again by your will or until the Lord Jesus comes. We pray in his name.